All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. Now, the last time we were here, we were basically dealing with uh, verses 15 through 17, and that was dealing with Jesus from the perspective of his divinity. Remember, okay, okay. What Paul was dealing with was what we were, uh, we called the Colossian heresy. And that is, there were a number of Judaizers, Jewish teachers who were teaching heretical doctrines concerning the person of Jesus. Okay. So Paul was dealing with this particular issue as he was speaking uh, concerning Christ in an exalted manner. And so basically, this is what we were looking at. In the last time, uh, uh, in our previous video concerning the exaltation of Christ, that is the deity of Christ. And this is one of the foremost things that the Apostle Paul was stressing is that about the divine nature. Jesus is God. He is the God of creation. He is the God in the beginning. He is before all things that is literally in time itself as the creator himself, but nevertheless, he himself has no beginning, no ending. He is eternal God. And that's what Paul was stressing, the divine nature of Jesus, as he was dealing with some of these heretical positions that were being brought or attempted to be brought in into this Gentile congregation, the Colossians, okay? So today, as we continue uh, in chapter one, he, he is still talking about Jesus, but he is giving another perspective concerning Jesus. And you're gonna see that as Paul talks about the fullness, and we're gonna get into that uh, pretty quickly. But anyway, so he continues on to talk about the exalted and glorified Christ, but now he he goes, kind of angles it a little bit, not so much as from the perspective of his divinity, but he's going to speak uh, concerning Christ from the perspective of his humanity, that he came in bodily form. And this is also important too. Both what? The divine aspect of Jesus's nature, as well as the human aspect of his nature. And it is the idea or the belief or faith in this, that is Christ Jesus is both God and man, absolutely necessary so that one might be saved. But anyway, Let's just go into it. And I think we should be able to complete chapter one as we continue on talking about Christ from this perspective. Verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So here the, the, the idea is now notice he is the head of the church. So it speaks of Jesus's position of firstness. And that's what you see as, and if you haven't looked at uh, the introduction to this particular epistle and even last week, um, the previous video, that there is a connection in all of this as Paul is flowing in his argument in talking about Jesus's preeminence 
or Jesus having the first. And so he continues on here in Jesus in the sense of his preeminence and Jesus having first place or first position and speaking of Jesus as being the head of the church. And so we see that firstness is talking about the head of this special uh, uh, body of believers with reference to the church. And notice he is the beginning firstborn from the dead. And now there is also that implication of Jesus having a body. Now, Paul is going to get more so into that physical body of Jesus, but that is that implication too. But the implication, but the direct statement is more concerning Jesus's firstness, his preeminence, Jesus being first in all things. And here it talks about what? The one who rises from the dead. Now, when it talks about, and I don't think I need to say this, but just in case, when it speaks that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, that is the first to rise from the dead in exalted form, in an exalted body, that is the body that rises from the dead that does not return to death again. Because when you think about in simplistic form, rising from the dead, Jesus himself resurrected a number of people from the dead. However, they all returned to the dead once again. Jesus rises from the dead in exalted form, never to return from the return to the dead again. So that's the idea. But overall, the sense is Jesus having the preeminence, he being first in all things, the exalted nature of Jesus. And so he is head of the church, exalted nature. He is the first to rise from the dead, not to return again, again, that exalted nature. And that's why it says at the end of this verse, what? So that he should have first place in everything. So whatever it is, Jesus will always be the preeminent one, the exalted and glorified one. And now verse number 19. And I'm going to take my time a little bit in verse number 19 because there is some difficulty that we will see with the verse. But let's just read it and then we'll go back and discuss it. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Okay, so now he talks about this reconciliation that is in Jesus. But before we get into that, verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, there's a problem with this particular verse, and I have a problem with the way the translators translated it. And I can understand, and I'm not trying to be overly critical, but I can understand why the translators translated it, the Father's good pleasure. However, that's not what the Greek said. Actually, in the Greek, I'm going to verse 19 in the Greek, it says, haunty in our toy. Because in him, you the you dark pon ta 
pleroma kontoikisa. That is, because in him it was pleased all the fullness to dwell. Now that's literally in the Greek. But when they translated it, they said the father's good pleasure. Now, and I don't want to get into a lot of Greek grammars, but just to make you understand the position that I've taken here and why this particular translation is not a good translation. Because notice, first of all, and they were honest, and I'm reading as always NESB, NESB translation. Notice father is in italic. It is italicized. And whenever you see an italicized word in the Bible, it means that this particular word is not in the Greek text, but it was added by the translators of the text for clarification. But also, too, when there is an addition for clarification, it could also be a sense of interpretation. So not only are they providing clarification, but they can also be interpreting. So here, the word fathers, giving reference to God the Father here, as we just stated, is not in the Greek text. And in order to find the, 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 the to, to, to legitimately, I would dare say, add fathers here, you would have to look for what is called the nearest antecedent. Now, and I'm sorry, guys, I, I don't want to overwhelm you with the Greek, but I really want you to understand it. The nearest antecedent is simply in order to put father here, you would have to look back in the text itself and find some reference to God, the father, the closest reference, the closest noun reference with respect to God, the father, and then you can insert the father. But if we look at the Greek text and even as it is rightly translated previously in the English text, all of the references have been to the son. Everything has been talking about Christ Jesus. There has been no reference to God, the father. So therefore going back, inserting here, the father would be an improper insert. And thus you need to look at the immediate context here and determine what the subject is, because this is what the translators are trying to do. They're trying to find the subject to the verb you uh, saying that is pleasing. And so the, the closest subject would be literally found within the text itself. What is you saying? It is pon ta pleroma. And that's the difficulty that they had. That is all the fullness to dwell. So what the text is literally saying is for all of the of the fullness, the fullness and the idea, the direct implication by virtue of context itself. Because notice what we've been talking about in verses 15 through 17. Jesus being God, God Almighty, God in the fullness, God the Creator. And this is what is congealing at this particular point. What? 
for all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And that's the point. It is not saying for it was the father's good pleasure that the fullness of God to dwell in him. And, and this is why, again, I know I'm spending some time, but you got to get it. If you take that interpretation, what you are saying is that God, the father placed in some manner or God, the father was pleased in some manner for the fullness of the divine person of the divine being, what it is to be God. This was done by the father towards Jesus. Do you understand that you see that difference? God is putting or placing or being pleased with the divine nature to be in Jesus. So what you're doing is you are sub by that interpretation, that translation, you are subtracting from Jesus the innate deity. That is, you're saying that Jesus in and of himself does not have the fullness of God, but the fullness of God was somehow placed within him by God, the father. And this is a detraction of the person of Jesus. It is a detraction from the text itself for what the fullness of what it is to be. God dwelt in Jesus by nature. So therefore the reading should be for the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus, the idea innately. Why? Because he is God and thus the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And then I think it also may have said in the King James version, if I remember correctly, in bodily form. And that's the point that is trying to drive home all of this glorious aspect of the divine nature of God itself dwelling in Jesus in a human body. And that is the idea. Okay. Enough spin on that, but now you understand the intent. That is what we see in the Greek text itself. Not the father's good pleasure. No, 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 no. The fullness of Jesus is innately in him because of who he is. Even that glorious fullness of the infinite God, even in a finite body. Okay. And then it continues on in verse number 20 talking about how even in this body. And so now you can see another principle that Paul is beginning to drive home here in verses 15 through 17. What did we see talking about the divine nature of Jesus, how Jesus is God eternal from the beginning creator of all things. And now as he begins to further the aspect of that perspective of the person of Jesus, he talks about, and that God coming into physical form. So the issue deals with what that Jesus has a body. And it is these two perspectives, as I was talking about in the beginning, that you must hold to. And Paul is going to talk about that. You must believe to be saved. You must believe what? That Jesus is God almighty 
and you must believe that he had a human body. He came, he was born of Mary, virgin born, had a physical body, and with that physical body, he offered that, shed his blood on the cross for the punishment for our sins, that's the offering of the body, and God demonstrated his receiving, his receive, he received the body of Jesus, he received the sacrifice of Jesus in the resurrection from the dead, okay? So this is what you must believe, or as the apostle Paul would continue to say in Romans, that if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. That's the idea. And Lord is what? Speaking of Jesus from the divine perspective, that he is God. If you confess Jesus is God and believe in your heart that God resurrected him from the dead, in order to be resurrected from the dead, you must have a body that can die. And what does Paul say the end result is? You will be saved. So notice the prerequisite to salvation, the lordship of Jesus, the divine nature and the physical body that dies for our sin and is resurrected from the dead. And believing these two things concerning Jesus in result, what you will be saved. So it is necessary to believe these two things concerning Jesus. And this is what Paul was dealing with, the heretical teachings of these Judaizers concerning the person of Jesus. They were marring this in their conception of just who Jesus is. But anyway, going back to 20 so we can now bring it to a close. We're going to try to finish the whole chapter. And thus, by the offering of Jesus, what did he do? He reconciled all things to God. That is, he made peace through the blood of his cross. And this and, and saints, we can really talk about these things and just really unpack all of the dynamics of what the apostle is saying how that the blood of Jesus on the cross made reconciliation, not only, and this is what you got to see what Paul is saying, not only was reconciliation to God made for humanity, but reconciliation with God was made with creation itself. Why? Adam as the peripheral head of creation, Adam being given head of all things, when he sinned, when he fell, all things in creation fell alongside with him. Why? All of these things were given to him. So therefore, in Adam's fall was the fall of all things. And Jesus, and this is Paul teaching once again in the book of Romans, and Jesus being the second Adam, in his death on the cross, not only did he reconcile Adam, or that is mankind, back to God, but he also reconciled all that pertain to Adam. In Adam, all things fell and death came. In Christ, all things were made alive. And thus, he reconciled not only humanity, but he also reconciled creation itself back to God. And that is the idea. And that's why they say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, he reconciled all things 
through that one act of his giving his body on the cross. Okay. And that's the point. So now he begins verse number 21 to more pointedly speak of them, these Colossians, okay? These people who received the gospel through Epaphras. So he speaks of their state of being reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. What Christ Jesus? This God of eternity and this one made flesh who gave his body an offering on the cross. He begins to speak of their personal reconciliation to God in the following verses. 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Now I want to just stop there because it's going to get just delicious as we deal with the next verse. But anyway, as I said earlier, now he talks to the Colossians and talk about the talks about the benefit that they themselves have through the offering of Jesus on the cross. And also you can see the element of grace what grace that is, you are saved, not because of what you have done, but because of the goodness and the mercy of God. Salvation by grace, not by works, not by what you did. And how did Paul evidence this idea? He says, what? You were formerly alienated because what you were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And that's when he brings in the idea of grace. What? It's not because you were so good because actually you were awful. You were engaged in evil deeds yet God in his mercy and goodness love. He demonstrates towards you in all of these things and grace. He saved you. Through the act of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is the idea of salvation, faith, grace, not of works. But anyway, talking about their formal, former spiritual state. God has still reconciled you through the fleshly body, through Jesus's fleshly body. Again, and here's the point that I was trying to say earlier. Now you can see clearly Paul's emphasis is now on what? The coming of Christ in the flesh. So here we speak once again of what? That dual nature of Jesus. Notice Jesus is God almighty creator from eternity. Jesus, that's who he is. Also, this same Jesus came in a physical fleshly body and this physical fleshly body was actually crucified and this body shed blood. It was a true physical body. So you see the point that Paul is trying to bring about both the idea of the dual natures of Jesus. He is God almighty from eternity who in eternity he did not have a body. He existed in the very form of God. That's Philippians chapter two. But this God of eternity became flesh and he became flesh 
for a purpose that he may offer up that body as a sacrifice unto God the Father for the purpose of reconciling the universe, especially mankind, to God. And this is the idea. And thus, in this body of sacrifice, he reconciled you who were once enemies of God in your sins and in your trespasses. Okay. And this is what, and for the purpose that what you might be presented holy and blameless without reproach before God, that by the offering of Christ Jesus, you might be presented once again unto God, the father as holy and without blame. That is without sin through what Christ has done. Now let's get into verse number 23 because I like that. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Man, I like that statement. So thick, so beautiful. No. So he says what? He says, a gay epinete te piste. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, the reason why I like this statement is because notice what he is talking about here. The context of what he is talking about is their salvation. Notice how verse number 22, how you were reconciled. So that's salvation. You're saved, but you're saved through what? Through what Jesus done through his offering of his body on the cross and the idea, the consummate idea. You are saved by Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Just go back to verse number 15. That's why you have to bring it all together. So beautiful. So beautiful. Who is this Jesus? He is God Almighty. That's who he is. He is God, the creator, God, the maker of heaven and earth, God, the creator of heaven and uh, of heaven and earth, of angels, of principalities, dominions, rulers and thrones. God who establishes all things. God who is present. That's that perfect tense verb, tunisticane, who is. And I don't want to get into all that again, but nevertheless, God who is holding all things together. He is that God, God who became flesh, God who offered up that fleshly body on the cross through that shed blood, reconciling through this offering all things to God the Father. This God, he is your savior. This is the faith that saves you, believing these things about Jesus he is that one. And if, no, now bring all of that. If indeed, if indeed you continue in faith firmly established. So it seems that this is what I love that Paul said. All of these things that he's been telling you about Jesus, these are the pertinent things of salvation that is the person of Christ. And he says it in such a way as if to say, listen, now you have to continue. See that notice. And if you continue firm in the faith, in firm, you have to continue believing these things, continue believing these things concerning the person of Jesus Christ 
as to your salvation. The language is so beautiful. Okay, let me just simply say it because I'm sitting up here enjoying it without explaining it. He, simp- he says, it, and in a sense, as to say, now you will be saved. You will continue in your salvation if you continue to believe. You got to remember the background of all of these things. What? The false Jewish teachers are bringing in heretical teachings about Jesus. They're teaching different things. They're not, they're saying, okay, fine. Jesus was a man. He was the Messiah, the Christ, but they're saying he was not God almighty. You follow that? So they are bringing in heretical teachings and additional things. You know, you're going to find that as we move through chapter two. All right. But the point is that they're really saying that it's insufficient what they have heard from Epaphras, the preaching of the gospel that Epaphras gave them concerning Christ. You believe these things about Jesus, you are saved. This is the end of the discussion. That was the gospel that Epaphras preached to them in the beginning, by the which they were saved. This is the gospel that the apostle Paul preaches. Christ Jesus, God who became flesh, died for their sins and rose from the dead. Faith in him alone. This is the gospel. But the beauty of verse number 23 seems to say it like you can lose your salvation if somehow you stop believing or this faith is, is interrupted. That's the word that's coming in my head. If somehow it's marred, you are not holding to the gospel. That's the way it kind of feels. And that's the point. Paul is, man, I like it. He's pushing that. It's designed to create a sense of fear. Paul is not saying that you can lose your salvation. What Paul is doing is he is driving home the absolute necessity with fear to hold on to what you have been taught. It's like in a sense, all right, I better be careful. I better be careful to hold on to what I have been taught about Jesus, to what I once believed about Jesus, lest something happen to me. So that's the kind of feel that Paul is giving. He is not, and let me say this with all determination, he is not saying you can lose your salvation if you fail to believe. But what Paul is doing is by this wording. He is exhorting you to hold on to what you have been taught. Notice the wording again. If you continue in the faith, you see it now? What faith? What you have been taught about Jesus? What I just told you, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is God of eternity. What I just told you in verses 18 up until now. God made flesh, died on the cross for your sins, shed his blood. This one resurrected from the dead who by these things, by his person, he has reconciled you to God the father. You must what? Continue 
to hold, to notice, firmly established, notice, steadfast, notice, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What gospel? The gospel that you heard from the beginning. So Paul is literally just driving home by this statement of verse number 23 with great emphasis. It is absolutely important that you hold to what you have been originally taught by Epaphras concerning the person of Jesus. Hold to the gospel. Hold to the person of Jesus. What he taught you, this is absolutely necessary for your salvation. And that's what he's trying to say. And then tell me, and I like the very end of that, the gospel about the person of Jesus, he is God made flesh died for your sins. This message that is preached, what about this message which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which our Paul was made a minister. In other words, this is the universal gospel that is preached everywhere. This is the true gospel. This is the only gospel. And see what Paul is saying here is, and all of that crap that these Judaizers are trying to bring to you, all of this new teaching, all of these additional things, all of these so-called corrections that they are bringing about the person of Jesus, all of this uh, additional stuff that you need to do to be saved, keeping of the law of Moses, the worshiping of angels. No, the gospel that Epaphras pe preached is the same gospel that I'm preaching. It is the universal gospel that is preached everywhere. And there is no other gospel. You hold you become unmovable. You become steadfast in your hope. The hope that was preached to you, the hope that was instilled in you by the preaching of the gospel concerning bottom line, who Jesus is. This is your only hope. This is the gospel and there ain't no other gospel because this is the only message that is preached throughout the world and the idea. And if anybody is coming to preach to you a different message, you disregard that. If anybody is coming to tell you about another Jesus, you disregard that. If anybody is trying to tell you Jesus is a created being, you disregard that. If anybody is telling you that Jesus is a glorified angel, you disregard that. If anybody is telling you that Jesus is not God almighty who created the universe, you disregard that. If anybody is telling you that this God did not come into flesh with a human body and die on the cross and shed his blood and was resurrected from the dead, you disregard that. Why? Because that is a different gospel. Okay, I enjoyed that little preaching. And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's teaching them, verse number 23, thus 
you hold to these things, continue in this faith, this gospel, you remain established, steadfast, unmovable. Don't let nobody tell you anything different about Jesus. Okay, now let me finish it. Verse number 24, we got to finish it. And now Paul begins to speak since he is talking about the gospel that is being preached. He now talks about himself. That's why he ended to the which I was made a minister. Verse number 23. So as he gets into verse number 24, now he begins to talk more so about himself and his position uh, in this gospel ministry. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. Boy, I like this part. In my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, that statement will mess you up in the English if you really don't understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. Because on the surface, notably said, so Paul is talking about his sufferings, right? Now, I rejoice in what? My sufferings for your sake, his suffering for the sake of the church. And notice, and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body. That is in my flesh. Paul is talking about his physical suffering on behalf of the body of Christ. And Paul is saying what he does. He suffers right now. Even now he suffers physically for the sake of the church. Now here's that last part that will mess you up if you don't understand it. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And if you just read that in the English, your eyes will pop out of your head and you'll go like, Paul, what did you say? You are filling up something that is lacking in what Jesus suffered? So what you trying to say, are you trying to say, Paul, are you trying to say that the afflictions, the sufferings of Jesus was not enough and therefore you have to complete it? So therefore, the salvation that we have is now in question. Why? Because Jesus' death on the cross, it ain't enough. Is that what you're saying, Paul, that you are doing what? Filling up what was lacking? There was something lacking in the suffering of Jesus. Is that what you're saying? And it makes us question if you look at it simply like that. If you look at it, if you look at it like that. Something lacking in the suffering of Jesus. It was not perfect and complete. No, that is not what Paul is trying to say. Okay, so actually what he said, and we're going to go here again. Let's look at the Greek. We're not going to inundate you with the Greek, but it is necessary to look at it. He says, anta na plero ta who's steramata. That is, that is to fill up. That is, and that the word anta na plero. The idea of this word is like taking turns taking turns. And so what he is saying, imagine this, you got a person uh, uh, digging a ditch. You got men digging ditches. I mean, uh, a number of men digging a ditch, right? And what one does is one digs and one digs until he gets tired or whatever. And then another 
follows after him and he continues digging in that ditch. And this is the idea of the word. And so what he is not saying is that the suffering of Christ, the salvific suffering. Okay, now here's what you got to get it. When Jesus died on the cross, that was salvific suffering when he shed his blood. The suffering of Jesus was for the salvation of the soul, the reconciling of all things, heaven and earth, and even us unto God. Salvation related. That's what I mean when I say salvific, it relates to salvation. The suffering of Jesus was salvific. But the wording that Paul uses, let's go back to the Greek so I can finish it up here. Who stare remata, who stay remata, the lack, tone, flip zone, suffering to Christu, in te sarke, uh, 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 the, the suffering of Christ, in te sarke mu, in my flesh, who pair to somatas, out to on behalf of his body. So what Paul is trying to say, okay, enough Greek. He is saying Paul, what Paul is not saying. Let me make that clear. Paul is not saying that his sufferings, his suffering, his personal sufferings in the flesh is related to salvation for the body of Christ. He is not saying that. What Paul is saying is, and it's by that word again, anta na plero. Paul is taking, it is his turn to suffer on behalf of the body. So what Paul is letting us see is God has determined for suffering in the body of Christ. Jesus has paid the ultimate price of suffering. Okay, Jesus has paid the ultimate price. However, it is the predestined. And I notice the words I'm saying, guys. It is the predestined will of God the Father that the church should suffer as well. In uh, even the ministers of the gospel. This is what Paul is saying about himself. Should participate in following after Christ in sufferings. And thus, as Jesus, the Lord himself, suffered, he became the ultimate example of suffering. And thus, those who follow after him should likewise also suffer. And this according to to the will of God. You understand what I'm trying to say? And do you understand what the Paul is saying when he says what? In filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That is, Paul is saying kind of like this. It is now my turn, my turn to suffer just like Jesus for the body of Christ. So as Jesus salvifically suffered. Jesus' suffering was to the salvation of the body of believers. But nonetheless, Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. And Jesus has now gone. And what Jesus has done is he has passed the baton, just like running a race. 
the baton that Jesus passed is the baton of suffering. And thus it is my turn to take up the suffering that God, the Lord Jesus has predestined on behalf of the church. So it's my turn to suffer on behalf. And that's when he's, and it just translated in a rudimentary form, filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. That's kind of, uh, that's a little obtuse. The precise uh, translation should be what I just gave you. My turn in suffering for the body of Jesus, for his church. It's my turn. I'm not uh, 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 applying in my suffering any salvation. No, I'm just continuing this predetermined work of suffering that Jesus had. I'm continuing this thing. Okay. It is not applicable to salvation. It is just what God has predetermined for his ministers that you follow in the steps of Jesus in suffering. And this Paul continues on 25. Let's bring it to a close. And of this church, that is because he was saying he was suffering on behalf of the body. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, keep going, to whom God will to make known what is the richest of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So now Paul is simply talking about his ministry to the church, such ministry, his apostleship, that he was given by God uh, uh, for, on behalf of the church. He, God made Paul an apostle, a minister to the church in order that Paul may fully preach the gospel, the word of God. And concerning this particular gospel, verse number 26, as he Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians and other places, this was a mystery. What is the gospel, the mystery? Why is it a mystery? A mystery simply is that which was previously unknown, but is now being made known. What is that mystery of the gospel? Christ Jesus, that is, and we don't want to rehash all of this, but I did a complete teaching on the epistle to the, uh, to the Ephesians. And I talk about that at length to the, which Paul talks about that at length in chapter one, the mystery of the gospel is that the Jews and the Gentiles would be united by the offering of Jesus Christ through the cross of Jesus Christ. They will be brought together as one people apart from the law of Moses. The Gentiles would not have to become adherers. The Gentiles would not have to become circumcised. The Gentiles in order and, and to become circumcised and joined with the Jewish people in keeping the law of Moses. This is no longer necessary. The law of Moses will be done away with and thus God 
through the cross of Jesus Christ will create a new people, one new man, Jew and Gentile, no longer under the law of Moses, but in Christ Jesus, under the law of Christ. By faith in Jesus as Messiah, they become now Jew and Gentile, one people. And this is the mystery that Paul is talking about, the mystery that was hidden. This was not known concerning the Gentiles, concerning the Jews, how they would be one people. But now it is being made known through the preaching of the gospel by Paul and by others. And this is now a blessing to the saints. And this is what he talks about in verse 27. These, this is the riches of the glory to even the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles can do what? Praise God, because now this revelation of being a people of God to, uh, to the Gentiles, remember, the Gentiles, this, a non-Jew Gentile, were once not a people of God. They were not the people of God, but now they are what? The people of God through what Jesus did on the cross along with the Jews. And so now the riches of this inheritance are now uh, received by Gentiles and thus the Gentiles themselves can rejoice in the gospel. So they hear this gospel. We are now people of God, people who once were not of God and alienated from God, enemies of God through our own deeds. And we were not like the Jews, a particular people of God who under the Mosaic law adopted by none of that. But now we too are people of God. Hallelujah. Praise God for all that he has done in adopting us too in God. And now we share in the riches and glory that God has predestined for his people. But we share these things, how? Through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And thus, what? Let's bring it to a close. 28. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And remember, so let's bring it to a close. And you need to see this part. Notice. All of this glory and benefit that they have because of Jesus. And what has Paul been talking about? Let's bring in the wider context. Who is Jesus? God Almighty. Who is Jesus? God who became flesh. And with that flesh, he died on the cross, rose from the dead, shed that blood. And what did he do? He reconciled uh, all things to himself. And what did we do, Paul say? We do in our sufferings for Jesus as we carried on the suffering of Jesus. We preach this message 
of Jesus. We preach this message of salvation. We preach this message concerning the riches of God in Christ Jesus, concerning the hope in Christ Jesus. Thus, he says, we proclaim him. In the Greek, it says, hon hemes kata gelomain. Him we proclaim. So you can see the emphasis that Paul is placing here. And thus, you can see how Paul is dealing again all of this. You just can't miss it. Dealing with the false teachings of the Judaizers about Christ Jesus, that is the insufficiency of Jesus, about the incorrect doctrine, Jesus is not God. Paul is literally thrashing all of these false belief and he is placing the emphasis on Jesus, not the emphasis on the Mosaic law, the keeping of the law, not the emphasis on circumcision, not the emphasis on observing days and holy days and Sabbath days, not the emphasis on angels and ministering angels or the worshiping of no on Jesus him, him alone we proclaim for salvation. Notice him we proclaim, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. You see, they are saying, remember what the Judaizers are saying. You, you need to have, we talked about this. Go back again and look at the introduction and what we talked about in chapter one. Protonosticism, this special knowledge that you need to have and this special wisdom that you need to have. This is what the false teachers were saying. And uh, you don't understand Jesus properly. We can give you the true knowledge and the wisdom that will make you complete in your salvation, complete in your not. Paul said, all oh, that's nothing but a bunch of lies. If it's not about Jesus the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus and Jesus alone in Jesus is sufficiency in Jesus is what all wisdom. Why? So that we present every man notice it complete in Christ. This knowledge of Jesus is all that you need. Nothing else. Don't bring in the law. Don't bring in the angels. Don't bring in worship days and feet. Nothing else. Jesus, you find what? Everything that you need in Jesus. You are what? Complete in every way in Jesus. And let's go back again. Verse number 23. Be firmly established. Steadfast. Don't be moved away from this hope of the gospel, from this preaching of the message of whom Jesus, because in whom Jesus are you complete. And once you have Jesus, once you have faith in Jesus, the person of Jesus, the divine person of Jesus, the human person in the offering of Christ on the cross of Jesus, you are complete Wisdom is complete in Jesus. And Paul finishes and simply says, and it is because of this, in this, he labors, striving with the power of Jesus, 
power given by Jesus that is working mightily in Paul to bring this message, to preach this gospel of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, perfection in Jesus alone. And this is it. Okay. I don't, I, I preach and teach. I did both. I did both. I did both, but I enjoyed that. But you can see how in the very nature of these, uh, this text, how Paul was dealing with that Colossian heresy in the denigration of the person of Jesus. He ain't God. Paul said, you're a lie. Verses 15 through 17. He is God, the creator. And make no mistake, that creator became flesh. He had a real body. And that body shed blood, but the shedding of that blood had a purpose. It was to reconcile all things to himself. And you are the beneficiaries of that work of Jesus, of that reconciliation that was determined by God. Even you who were once alienated, you had no part in this. You were not saved by what you did because you had an evil mind engaging in evil works. But nevertheless, God has saved you and I am a minister to this gospel. And how has God saved you? By the preaching of the gospel, this mystery that was once held, uh, uh, wasn't revealed in times past, but now we are preaching you Gentiles are now be a part of the body of Christ. This richness that you can now enjoy by faith in Jesus alone, apart from law, apart from Mosaic law and angels and all this foolish teaching, because you are made complete, perfect, all wisdom in Jesus. This is the hope that you should hold to. And this is the gospel that I preach this is the gospel that I'm suffering for. Okay, that ends chapter one. Thanks for joining me in all of that. Join me again as we continue on in chapter two, the Lord willing. If this teaching has been a blessing to you, uh, hit the like button, that'll be good. And subscribe so that you can continue to get these teachings and support this ministry, there is always a description, a link in the description that you can use to support the ministry. But anyway, guys, enjoy that glorious teaching concerning the person of Jesus, and we'll see you next time. God bless.